What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with the one, the only, the highly sought after, hard to get, Adam Frommel, who has never been on this podcast before, has never had anything to do with it whatsoever, except that's a lie. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Frommel09. He is currently basically just running the show at Sportscasting right now, so check them out as well. He is also a, a two-time like former co-host of the Hardwood Knox, and we still have his handles in the they're they're not the headers, but they're just they're in our descriptions as well. So he is he is he is Hardwood Knox. It's in his blood. Welcome back to Adam Frommo. First time we podcast in a few months. I'm excited. I'm off the wall. I can't even talk. I'm so excited. Fro, how are you doing? What a warm welcome. It's been so long though. I, I forgot what is a what is a podcast. Uh, I don't know either. It's something that some people listen to when the podcast is popular, so they don't listen to this one all that often. But for the dozens of listeners that we have, we do it for you. Exactly. I, I I'm just confused because I'm like seeing your face, and you know, since I left, like you've taken all the YouTube stuff and the TikTok stuff and the Instagram stuff up to that next level. Impressive stuff. Like definitely I was holding you back. Definitely kind words I do not deserve. Uh, it's it's amazing what you can do when you don't prioritize um, the rest of your life. Let me just tell you that. As you uh, also, as you well know, uh, I am excited to. This feels like I don't know. It, it feels like there should be confetti or something. I'm sure. I'm sure the listeners are excited. Uh, but I did ask you to come on so that we could do backcourt rankings entering next season. Just because why not? It was a it was a question we had after the Cavs trade from one of our listeners. And I didn't think it was worth being a mailbag question. It feels like not just an entire podcast, but a two-part podcast. So I asked you to do it. Um, it's going to be broken into two parts. We will do the bottom 15 first, work our way up. Um, we have composite rankings. We will have our individual rankings to the side of that for people who are watching on YouTube. And then there will also be tiers to help you follow along. Uh, this is all very, if you get offended, like, I'm sorry, but this was, this was one really hard. And two, this is just a casual basketball conversation we're trying to project ahead some of these might change hashtag utah jazz we have no idea what's going to go on with their backcourt maybe even the lakers as well uh, but it was quite an undertaking easier than the front line which i started to do and then junked it because i don't have any <laughs> desire to have to look at it um, it's more complicated with you... three people right uh before we kind of cannonball in how did you find this exercise oh it's impossible you know i, I we, we have the same mentality with all these always we always have where it's like we just spend way too much time you know, worrying over the minute details and whether a team should be 16 or 17 and to lose sleep over it. And it was no different this time around. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that you brought me on this episode solely for the Google Sheets expertise that I could try to bring to the table rather than the actual basketball stuff. But I'll take I, it either I, way. I honestly forgot I was going to need it before you started working your voodoo just before we recorded. <laughs> I was like, I didn't have any of this like tier and composite ranking stuff in my mind. So I didn't ask you to come on for that reason, but now officially I'm, I'm happy that I did. No, um, I just came, like kind of came on and took over. Like this good. was Dan's that's spreadsheet how... originally, no longer. That, that That's like par for how it used to work around here though, yeah. is that I'd make a spreadsheet that was very <laughs> low level and you would gussy it up for the better. So I'm thankful. Um, and just to reiterate, this is for the 2022, 2023 season ahead. Like if you think that Jalen Suggs is going to be like a five-time MVP, uh, that was not factored into to this type of equation with them. And for people that are following along on YouTube, I will change the screen in just a few moments so that you can see us unveil it because I know everyone's excited to, to watch that. Um, but do you want to get us started here by number 30, which is this is the this is our bottom tier. So it's tier six tier that we six. have these teams in. I, I kind of feel like we have to unveil 30 and 29 at the same time because we had a tie. We talked about it before we started the show. Um, I had one of these teams 30th, the other 29th. You just had the opposite order. Um, so 30 for me was the San Antonio Spurs with Josh Primo and Devin Vassell. And then we had, uh, the Lakers were in at 29 with Russell Westbrook and Lonnie Walker. Although you could sub in Patrick Beverly, if you really wanted to, we're not counting LeBron James as a point guard, um, for this episode to me, the, the Spurs came in, in that final spot, just cause I, I I don't know that there's a star. I don't know that there's the creation and comparing them directly to each other. Since again, we, we did have these two teams tied in the composite rankings. It's the Russell Westbrook factor where 
in all likelihood, he's going to continue to be that net negative previous force who is a shell of his old self. But, but what if, what if he does accept a role that plays to his limitations and actually allows him to, to bring his strengths to the forefront because there are still strengths. What if he buys in on defense to some extent, because it's too late in the, in the career for that to, to happen fully. But if it happens a little bit, I think that Russ alone has the highest upside of these four players uh, for the 2022-23 season. And that just nudged them ever so slightly ahead, even though I kind of feel like we could have had a seventh tier just for these two teams. Right. I mean, I gave it um, I, I gave it to you, the Lakers tiebreaker here, but I'm just not confident in. I hate the Westbrook, Lonnie Walker, the fourth fit. I think if you played Beverly next to Westbrook, that might make more sense. I really just also don't have confidence that this is going to be the Lakers backcourt anyway. Uh, and I, I'm higher on the Spurs, quite frankly. I know you mentioned you're worried about the shot creation. I think Josh Primo brings enough of it. There's certainly, you could wonder about Devin Vassell for sure. Uh, but I think Josh Primo has like some nice squishiness, wiggleness to his off the dri uh, dribble game. And so that could help. And look, there might even be a downgrade because we don't know what their starting five is going to look like with this team. Um, at least I haven't seen it. So like if they go a little bit smaller and Josh Richardson's in here instead of Devin Vassell, I don't know if that would bump it up regardless. But I do think that the Spurs, when you sort of look at the, there are teams in front of them. And I would say like, they're probably not built to pass much, if any of them. But this is a team that I think could move its way up because so much about the players that we're using, even though Devin Vassell is entering year three, they are still, uh, uh, they, they skew towards unknown. And as we find out more about them, we could just become much, much higher on them. But I'm, I'm a firm believer that San Antonio's backcourt is going to be better than, than the Lakers is because I think Russ, Russell Westbrook, even insofar as he tried to adapt at points last season, I just think he's an actively detrimental player unless the team it it's building image is catered to what he does best and the Lakers aren't. So you're counting on him to adapt and him adapting. I don't even know what that looks like. Cause I can't picture him, you know, is he going to suddenly become a good jump shooter? Are we going to see him set more, more screens? Is he going to knock down shots off the catch, catch become a really accomplished cutter. So I just have a, a ton of questions there. To me, it's one of those situations where the most likely outcome might be the Spurs being marginally better than the Lakers, but the ceilings are drastically different. Because I, we haven't seen enough from Primo or Vassell yet. Even if Vassell looks like he's already a nice role player, we haven't seen the glimpses of stardom. And if Westbrook does become a star cutter and commits on the defensive end, I think the ceiling is high enough that even if it's not the most likely outcome, I'm pushing them slightly ahead here. I, again, it's fair. We're probably quibbling. I think it's interesting that we that this next team though finished at number twenty eight ahead of both of these teams because this this team was hard. And so we have uh, the Orlando Magic at number twenty eight. We both had them at number twenty eight, by the way, uh, in in our own rankings. This was tough for me because Jalen Suggs is not coming off a good rookie year. He did get injured, uh, and they did they shouldered. I saw some people say that he needed like more freedom in the offense. He had plenty of freedom within the offense. I might argue that they tasked him with doing too much and playing with Markel Fultz for a full season. Also having Paolo Bancaro there to where you can streamline Jalen Suggs's role where you're sort of, he's, he's not dabbling in on ball touches, but he doesn't have to be your primary creator and you can get him more higher quality off ball looks. I just think we're in for a much better sophomore season from him. And I still just, I'm just a big believer in kind of the strength um, when he gets going downhill and his ability to absorb contact, even if the finishing's not always there, I think he will be able to um, generate better separation going downhill and on his jumpers. And I just expect him to be more efficient when you're looking at some of the shots um, that he was taking last year. And could I see this team rising up? If Markel Fultz stays healthy, we've seen him add more directionality to his own downhill game, and he does have sort of the, the little midi. I'd like to see him get to the line more, or maybe just um, even hit, get to the rim with better frequency. The defensive potential of this duo, though, I don't want to say it's off the charts, but it's pretty high because I think Suggs is going to end up being like a really tough defender as well. Then you have Fultz, who is just sort of disruptive and can cover bigger players too. I didn't know where to put them, though, because there is the Fultz health, health question. He missed a bunch of time last season. He looked good upon return. And both of these players, they have limitations. And Fultz specifically, like his offensive limitations do worry me. And then we're dealing with the uncertainty of, okay, well, what does Jalen Suggs look like from year one to year two? I'd argue that could technically benefit them because I would expect him to just be a lot better by virtue of how much he struggled as a rookie. 
it almost feels like this is a team with a backcourt comprised of experienced rookies because Markel Fultz has had no continuity whatsoever in his career, thanks to the injuries, thanks to changing teams and changing systems. And then Jalen Suggs, as you mentioned, even if he's going to become that five-time MVP, now that we, we referenced off the top, like he is essentially still going through the hurdles that first-year point guards have to undergo, where turnovers are problematic, shot selection is problematic, the game hasn't quite slowed down. And I think that's the biggest thing for this duo is on the offensive end. Like the game still hasn't slowed down for either of them. Fultz has shown flashes when he's been able to stay healthy. And I think they can get there. They're probably going to be aided by an improving magic roster around them with Bancaro, with, uh, with Franz Wagner, who has looked phenomenal in Eurobasket to this point. Uh, they're only Franz. Only Franz. I still maintain that you should rebrand this podcast as only Dan's and only have guests named Dan. That'll but be the spinoff podcast. That's neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's like an experienced, inexperienced backcourt with loads of potential and loads of uncertainty. I, I do think that there's a good amount of separation between Orlando and the two bottom teams in these rankings, but it's hard to be confident given what we've seen to this point in a surge coming, especially because if the Magic are better than expected, if they're drastically exceeding an over-under total, it's likely going to be because the front court plays above expectations, not necessarily because the backcourt does. Their best passer is probably in the front court, looking at Pablo Bancaro. I think he's their best passer already. I will say, with him, and then you also have like well, Mobamba, of course, but there's some stretch to Wendell Carter Jr.'s game. You have Wagner, you have Gary Harris and Terrence Ross. There's a lot of lineups now that could have a ton of spacing, which felt like... Orlando's offense could get a little clumpy over the past two years, and that could help elevate the play of, of this backcourt. Uh, did you want to bring us to our next backcourt, which I think was – this? they were also tough to place. They were tough to place, and yet we were both at number 27 for them, and that's the Houston Rockets with Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green. Um, Kevin Porter Jr. was one of my biggest breakout candidates last season, and it just didn't come to fruition. There's, just, there's still not enough intelligent decision-making there where it feels like he makes his mind up before actually moving with the basketball. He, he telegraphs passes, he telegraphs driving lanes, and it's made it tough for him to capitalize on the athletic potential. On the flip side, Jalen Green, talk about a strong second half that really should curry a lot of favor moving forward because it looked like much like Anthony Edwards's second half of his rookie year, where like it started to make sense for him. And you could tell that his scoring prowess was starting to be realized in the moment. I think you, you often see the game feeling like it's slowing down for guys like Jalen Green who have that natural scoring talent. And then all of a sudden, they can make it work. And he made it work in the second half of the year. And I think that he can continue doing that. I just don't know how consistent it's going to be. The upside of this backcourt is probably higher than the upside for the next few in our rankings. But the downside is going to be popping up more frequently than Houston would like to admit. Yeah, I just don't see it from Kevin Porter Jr. anymore. I think he's better suited as sort of a microwave sixth man. Uh, I thought, you know, the after his like first half season in Houston, I thought there was more to plumb from his playmaking, but I think he's just overstretched if you want him to be the actual point guard. Now, Jalen Green's good enough to where the dynamic still works, but long-term for this team, I would like the idea of maybe testing out Ty Ty Washington almost right off the bat. Um, I would be fine with Josh Christopher if you really want to go with Jalen Green being like, the like that's your guy who's going to lead you in scoring and assists, and that's how you view it. Um, and so I'm not saying they need to deviate away from this, but I think there's going to be more upside in experimenting with a different player next to Jalen Green at this point, which is why I couldn't bring myself to put them any higher. And look, I could see San Antonio or Orlando specifically leapfrogging them. I just don't think there's any upside in the, like wherever the Lakers end up, like they, I feel like they have a very, I know we talked about up, like you said, like Westbrook's the best player in this tier, perhaps um, we're close to it, or it could has the highest upside in this. Tier could, be, single, could be probably could be. isn't, but could be. Yeah, I, I just see limited value there. But yeah, Houston is Houston's tough, but having Jalen Green is like a mega good star for them. And if I would consider nudging them up immediately if you told me that Ty Ty Washington or even Josh Christopher is going to be the guy that logs more time next to Jalen Green in the, mm -hmm. the more important lineups. It is funny having them next to 26, which we have as the Los Angeles Clippers with Reggie Jackson and Norman Powell. Because Wait, if 
I think people are going to might, if they don't listen to this all the way, like Paul George and Quiet Leonard, we're banking on the clip. Like this is the, like the, they're going to be wings. They'll have Leonard or George's like qualifies the four with the way they're going to play. Um, unless you just think that it's going to be Kawhi, Paul George and Reggie Jackson, and then like Marcus Morris or Nick Batum slash of each Zubats. I didn't know how to treat this one. Sorry I interrupted there, but that was tough. It's like, I wasn't going to put Paul George as the two here because right. even if the Clippers start games like that, I think invariably their most used backcourt combination is not going to be uh, with Paul George as the de facto two. I was fully on board with that, but I am glad you explained. Um, but th- the point here is there's a big disparity in upside versus high floor. I think the right. Clippers backcourt as listed is the high floor backcourt where you know what you're going to get from Reggie Jackson and you know what you're going to get from Norman Powell. And in both cases, it's good. It's not great. There's not that much more to plumb. You can use Norman Powell as like that secondary pick and roll ball handler who can put some pressure on the basket. You don't want to do it that frequently. He can make passes. He can serve as a facilitator. He can operate off the ball but everything has to be in moderation. And the same is true for Reggie Jackson, even if Reggie Jackson doesn't want it to be true. So you, you know what this is. This is a, a pretty easy one to, to place, set it and forget it, and then see what they do with their various lineup combinations because the upside for the Clippers is clearly not coming here. It's coming from the health of the players we're listing as wins. Right. I would say like if we were talking about their real upside is I could see putting them ahead of maybe the next two teams to start the the forthcoming tier. And that's just where I'm at. And th- look, they're dynamic offensively. Uh, you look at Norman Powell's downhill pressure, his shooting if he's healthy. Reggie Jackson, he's become like a really good set jump shooter. And he gives you some, he's like not a top tier creator, not going to put a ton of pressure on the basket, but he can really be confident with the ball in his hands. Their value though, is the fact that they're both not predominantly on ball players. And like Reggie Jackson can be a steward, but if they're in a Clippers lineup, like you want to run things through Paul George, or you want to run things through, uh, Kawhi Leonard. I also do wonder, is there a chance John Wall enters this fold? I know everyone expects him to come off the bench and it makes the, the most sense to sort of give him uh, ownership over the lineups that will include at most one of Kawhi or Paul George. Uh, but could you see a scenario in which like it's it's Norman Powell and John Wall for this? Or I guess less likely, even less likely to be Reggie Jackson and John Wall. The Clippers are just so versatile that we're, we're past positions. But like, even separating them into a front court and back court feels stupid at this point. I mean, if you know what to expect from John Wall, congrats on being John Wall. Maybe I, I he hasn't just, played basketball in, in so long at this point. He's thirty-two, I believe, by the time this this comes out. Uh, how do we know what to expect from him in any way? Like, yeah, he could absolutely play good basketball in the starting lineup, probably alongside Powell. Even then, I don't know how much higher this is going to rise because it's an, it's impossible to figure out what exactly John Wall is going to offer in 2022-23. That wraps up tier six. And so just to recap, this is our bottom tier. The Spurs, the Lakers, the Magic, the Rockets, and the Clippers were all in our bottom tier. I would probably listen if people wanted to nudge the Clippers up into tier five. But we get to tier five, which is ranking number 25, and it is the Indiana Pacers. And we have Tyrese, Tyrese Halliburton, of course, and Benedict Matherin. For me personally, just a vote of confidence in Tyrese Halliburton, who was caps lock fucking awesome once he was traded to Indiana. And guess what? He was caps lock fucking awesome in Sacramento. Uh, I was really impressed with a lot of the stuff that he did in isolation in Indy. He is still... I don't think he's ever going to be hardwired to be as selfish as he needs to be, but he is an A plus passer, A plus plus passer to me. And he is going to make every single lineup work because he can basically accommodate any situation. If you wanted to play him next to someone who is more ball dominant, Hey, guess what? That's going to work. I remain intrigued with Benedict Matherin. I think because the Pacers have committed to this real rebuild, he might be a dark horse rookie of the year candidate. There was a lot more on ball juice to him watching what I did of summer league than I thought there was going to be. I think he and Halliburton can play off each other really well. Uh, and I'm excited for this backcourt. Can I see them needing to be pulled back a bit just because Benedict Matherin's a rookie and, you know, historically I do feel like rookie guards have harder learning curves. That's not a scientific study done by me. That's just me saying that and having read stuff that suggests that, uh, but I could see them needing to be pulled back, but I'm bullish on, 
Tyrese Halliburton as someone who is going to be an all NBA staple, if not like making a team every single year, like he's going to be in that discussion continually. And it could happen as soon as next season for me, maybe not because the Pacers could be bad. But uh, I think that when we're talking about two players, one player can very much elevate the standing of a backcourt. And I think we'll see that with Luka Doncic in Dallas whenever we get to them. Uh, but like Matherin might be good right off the bat. And so I, I love just the the dynamic between these two without having even seen them together yet. I was really surprised that I ended up having them this low because it much like you, two players I really, really like watching and think the world of. Halliburton is just good in every sing- single situation and has already shown more on-ball juice than we expected in his first couple of years in the NBA. There's still so much room to grow, even if he's not going to be that true alpha scorer. And that could be Matherin who was one of my favorite prospects in this entire draft, the mentality that he has as a scorer, as a defender, like he, he just, it feels like he gets it. That said, without the talent to really bolster them in Indiana, they're going to face a lot of defensive pressure. And I think that's why I ended up having them lower is just, they're probably going to put up stronger raw numbers than you would expect from a team sitting this far down in the backcourt rankings, whether that translates to winning, probably not at this stage of their careers, because they're going to be trying to figure out how to operate alongside one another, how to best probe different defensive looks that are thrown at them throughout a long grueling schedule. So I just, I don't see it yet from a productivity standpoint, once you factor in winning and efficiency, even if they're going to be fun to watch and there are going to be flashes of excellence pretty frequently. Brings us to number 24. This is just like was impossible. And I'm hoping this because we're recording this in advance, it doesn't become dated in any way, but it's the Utah jazz at 24 and Colin Sexton backcourt staple. Now, like he's going to start lock it uh, in. Is he playing with Mike Conley or Malik Beasley? Uh, none of them. We don't, we don't really know at this point. I would hazard though, the fact that it like, I would peg it as a better than 50% chance. It's going to be one of those two players to start. See, I would think it's Beasley. I think Conley will either come off the bench not play or more likely than not be moved. That's not like, yeah, the jazz might force a pullback, but like, that's not actually a bad backcourt. There's not a ton, unless he's, if Conley's not there, you really lack creation. I think Sexton's passing downhill is good enough. And I think he can make passes out of the pick and roll. Are you going to trust him to create something out of nothing for others? Is he going to pass guys open? No, he's going to be more of a reactive passer, but he is shot very. Yeah. You want to see his three point volume go up a little bit more. I mean, if he's going to take pull-up jumpers, you want to see them hit him in a higher clip. But he is efficient on drives. Defenses react. And if you can get him to take more threes, he's been a very efficient for his career uh, off the catch, three-point shooter. And then you play him with Malik Beasley, who has like some off-the-dribble juice, and he has a little bit of a down season for part of last year, but he can work, is going to space the floor. Uh, your defense is going to be iffy. Even if Mike Conley's healthy and playing, yeah, he's probably the best defender of these three, which is weird to say. Beasley has the physical tools. Sexton has not been great. I still think he has another gear to get to on the ball because there's just like, when you look at some of his stances and the pressure he could put on, I'm not I'm not ruling it out. Uh, but this was a, it was impossible to place. But I also think if you want them to just be thrown down to 30, the worst version of the Jazz, it's so guard heavy right now that just by virtue of having Colin Sexton, there's going to be quality in the backcourt. And I think you can, you know, reasonably predict that, okay, if Conley's not there, then Jordan Clarkson or Malik Beasley might be. So we're not going to get to a point, you know, which Jared Butler and um, Nikhil Alexander Walker being their, their primary um, one ones and twos. We should though. That'd be great. I want to see a lot of Jared Butler. If anyone cares Absolutely. about that, I don't think they do, but. I mean, the discrepancy in our personal rankings here, because I had the jazz at 21st and you had him at 26 is just solely who we picked in that second backcourt spot because we're recording this while Mike Conley is still on the roster. And I think that he makes the most sense alongside Colin Sexton at this point. So I had them at 21 because Conley still has good basketball left in the tank, even if he is not the peak version of himself any longer, as was made painfully clear throughout this last campaign. If it's Malik Beasley, I probably drop to right where you have them at 26. His shooting from the outside, his ability to catch and shoot in particular gives them a good floor just the ceiling isn't quite there with him in the lineup. So it's in flux. It could look nothing like this, as you said, but Sexton alone elevates them into this tier. What if they just decide very quickly, if they decide we're going to bring Sexton off the bench and it's going to be Conley and Beasley, does that move it up or down for you? Probably a little down. 
I mean, the, I the exciting part of this is the the on-ball rim attacking pressure that Colin Sexton can put on a defense. And if you're taking that away to have him feature as a sixth man, your team probably isn't getting significantly worse. But if we're looking at starting backcourt rankings, they're going to drop a little bit. Number 23 is the Milwaukee Bucks. We had Pat Connaughton penciled in as the starting two. I think that makes the most sense. Uh, I would rather, like, I'd definitely rather see that over Grayson Allen. Uh, it's a very, it's a quality backcourt. And Drew Holiday shot a trillion percent. That's that's factually a trillion percent on step back threes last year. And he can be, you know, he's got like that, that physicality, that strength to him on offense too. And if you sometimes wish he would, as a scorer, operate a little bit more quickly. I think Connaughton has turned into just like, the quintessential three and D swingman wing, whoever you want to classify him. And he can move fairly well off the ball. If he's going to continue to shoot the ball, like he did last season too, uh, I would listen to a case for this being up. It was just tough. It's, it's always tough to place the back courts where it's like, there's one all-star caliber player. And then very much someone who is more of a, yeah. a role player. And the, you know, his best case outcome is not necessarily a mystery or it's there. There's limited value there. So 23 feels so low, uh, if it was going to be, you know, if they decide to start Wes Matthews, I don't think this changes. If they start Grayson Allen, I don't know if it changes much. So if you think it's going to be one of those guys, um, it's definitely not. Gonna, if it was Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton, which I do not like, that's never maybe in some lineups when you're playing super big, perhaps. But that's that wasn't even up for consideration. So it seems low because the Bucks are so good, as is Drew and Connaughton's fine. But I also think when you start to look at the names to come, you begin to understand it. I couldn't move the Bucks any higher as much as I wanted to because Drew Drew Holiday, I'm I'm just I'm worried that there is a little bit of a decline coming because we typically see point guards or shooting guards as well. They don't always age gracefully as they enter their 30s. He's 32 now. We also saw last year he created for himself unlike he had before. So last season, 19.7% of his made twos were assisted. 43.2% of his made threes were assisted. Those are significantly below both career averages and recent year averages, where he was at 26.7 and 57.1, respectively, for his career. And he coupled that with better efficiency on those shots than we'd seen in his recent history. And I, I don't know how sustainable that's going to be in an offense that is going to continue to feature Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton and doesn't have him creating as a primary option as frequently. Um, I, I hope it can be continued because Drew Holiday is amazing and so fun to watch and perpetually underrated. And maybe we're underrating him ourselves here now, but I just, I don't know that I totally buy the version that we saw last season. Wow. So you're, look, you're the one who might be understanding. I, I totally buy it. I'm with it. I hope like, you're I'm, right. uh, and look, so this is clearly the best defensive backcourt so far, right? I'm trying exactly. to think of, yeah, and it's 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 pretty easy. Uh, looking at number 22, and again, we are still in tier five. It is this one was just like I feel like it reads weird, but De'Aaron Fox and Kevin Herter in Sacramento. Uh, I love the offensive potential of this group. Kevin Herter is just. He can be a very fiery shooter. There's some stuff he can do off the dribble, but he's just very elusive if you get him moving without the ball, and he can take a lot of those quick-fire threes. The fact that you have to deal with the thrust from De'Aaron Fox on the ball with Kevin Herter sort of floating around, this could be a deadly just like one-two combination in transition where Fox is getting out and then sprays the ball to Kevin Herter, who's trailing. They're also going to work well in the half court. I like that the Kings have surrounded Sabonis and Fox with a bunch of shooting. I question what the defense is going to look like, including for this backcourt. Uh, Herter has been, I guess he had, he's six, seven, and you can sometimes feel him on defense. Fox is underachieved by and large. I think when you've looked at some of his second halves, he's been better defensively than he's been, you know, through other, you know, the first parts of the season, we need to see him put it together for an entire year. I, I felt weird having them, um, uh, in front of Milwaukee and like some other teams. I think they were just in front of Milwaukee in my own rankings. Yes, they were. But I ultimately think this is where they belong. And again, that's so weird because we're talking about two like pretty young players and De'Aaron Fox still has that all NBA ceiling. Like look at how he closed last year. He was just an absolute monster. So th again, this feels weird looking at it, but without seeing the other names that could also make it difficult. I remember putting them here and it was the same feeling with Drew and Pat Connaughton. I'm like putting them in the bottom 10 just feels almost egregious. Yeah, to me, it's a sustainability question where 
if you do have this this new look front court in Sacramento that's going to demand a lot of touches, that's taking away from these guys. And then are they going to be able to stay as engaged when De'Aaron Fox isn't always operating with the ball and isn't always able to move in warp speed? He could. He he certainly did at the end of last season. But again, it's a consistency thing. And, and the same is true for Herter, where in Atlanta – he could fill just about any role that you would ask of a backcourt member or a true wing in moderation. And then he would disappear. So you'd have those games where he's, he's looking like a strong secondary creator, creator, sometimes even a primary creator. He's looking like a guy who can hit pull up jumpers. Looks like he can knock down the catch and shoot jumpers. And then he just disappears and you forget he exists. So that's the issue to me is as talented as they can be without the opportunities to be featured players on a regular basis, what happens when they aren't the primary options? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a perfect way to to frame it with Kevin Herter specifically. This next team at number 27, I single-handedly put them here. And I don't want to say, oh, excuse me, at number 21. Uh, I don't want to say that I regret it, but it's the Detroit Pistons. Jay Nivey, Cade Cunningham. Jay Nivey is just a question mark in the NBA. We haven't seen him yet. And so is this giving him too much credit? Maybe this was all about Cade for me. You watch him play last year. Fuck the efficiency numbers. I don't, yeah, I don't care. This is ball on a string shit. Like he just has the entire game, the way he can see it and process it and decisions he could make. You give him more spacing or more talent. I think Detroit's given him slightly more talent than last year. I feel like he single-handedly got Marvin Bagley paid in free agency. And Marvin Bagley was really good with the Pistons last year. And he, he showed some really nice touch around the basket and some nice little fades. That's future all-star Marvin Bagley, by the way. Right. Adam did say one of, one of the podcasts, Marvin Bagley still has an all-star ceiling. So he's, he's with you Pistons fans, but this is all about Cade for me. And not that anything you get from Ivy is a bonus. I do think it's going to be big. I think Cade Cunningham can work off the ball. I think we're going to see his three point clip skyrocket. Um, and that's going to maybe make him like an even better defender if he doesn't like, and he just has the size to gum up stuff. The one, the two, the three, the four, uh, he's fantastic. I think the big thing here, I like the element that Jaden Ivy adds going downhill. If you want to get moving in transition, the way that Cade's able to play off of him, we could see some, I'd like to see Cade Cunningham be a screen center here, a screen screen center, excuse me for not a screed center, uh, a screen center for Jaden Ivy here. I think what it's going to come down to is one, just how good Jaden Ivey is as a rookie, but also can he work off of Cade Cunningham? I didn't watch a ton of Ivy in college, but when you do go back and you look at like his strengths, his weaknesses, just some of the tape, I want to know if he's going to be able to play off the ball like a higher amount, just because you want the ball in Cade's hands, just because he can play off the ball. doesn't mean that you want to take it away from him. And therein lies my concern and why I had this team seven spots lower than you in my rankings. I I share your sentiments about Cade Cunningham. I think it's going to be a rough rookie year for Jaden Ivey. And that's not to say that he's not going to develop into a star player. I actually do think that he's a really good long-term prospect. But Detroit was drafting for talent not fit here, which is the right thing to do in the Pistons situation where you are very much in talent accumulation mode, not trying to plug in the pieces that are going to immediately vault you up the Eastern Conference standings. Ivy was an on-ball stud at Purdue. He does not have that much experience playing off the ball, which he's going to have to do if you're maximizing Cade Cunningham's talents. Beyond that, he's very much the type of prospect who's going to go through those those issues that befall most first-year guards, where a lot of shot selection is poor. There are going to be a lot of clangs off the rim and there are going to be a lot of turnovers because you think that the game is not moving as fast as it actually is when you're trying to serve as a facilitator, trying to probe into lanes in a crowded space. This to me, my ranking is because they're going to give big minutes to Ivy and it's not always going to go well. And I I cannot be more clear that I don't think that means he's not a good prospect or isn't going to be good down the road. But this particular setup is not ideal for him to thrive right off the bat. I'd be with you there. And this feels like one of us will just be very wrong is what is clear. So either you're going to be just, I'm almost thinking that I'm too in love with Cade and I inflated their ranking, but I'm not going back. That's possible though. Uh, Fair enough. So I think that we should do these next three teams together to round out tier five. What do you think? I'm for it. 
All right, so number 20, the Charlotte Hornets, LaMelo Ball and Terry Rozier. 19, the Knicks with Jalen Brunson and R.J. Barrett. Please note Donovan Mitchell is not part of that backcourt. And 18 is OKC with Josh Giddy and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. My rationale, very quickly, Terry Rozier and LaMelo Ball work perfectly together. Uh, there's just not a lot of on-ball scoring there. And that's, I think, like, you need, you want at least one of your backcourt members to be an aggressive or higher-level on-ball scorer. I think LaMelo Ball can get there. I question whether he's... He's wired to do it. Are we going to see him still improve as a finisher if he gets stronger? Um, I believe in the shot. I do think he can create a little bit more of his jumpers off the dribble and hit them at a higher clip. His passing is just absurd. And the way that he gets his teammates running in transition and the way that defenses are sort of trying to plan around his decision-making because there's like a randomization to the way that he passes. And it's just really incredible. It's flashy and there's substance to it. For the Knicks, I think they have the potential to skyrocket up here. Uh, I, maybe I'm viewing this too much in the context of like, well, is Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson both going to be playing a ton of minutes with them? And then who's going to be the the other players? RJ Barrett going to be playing a lot of three still for this team. I had questions about what their backcourt was even going to be. Um, I think this really just a lot hinges on what does Jalen Brunson look like in a Knicks system that's not going to afford him as much spacing or complimentary shooting as Dallas did. And then what is what do the Knicks allow RJ Barrett to do? We saw them give him the keys for about half the year last season. He looked good. Can he improve as a finisher? Can he improve sort of that like off the dribble mid-range game? Um, is his passing going to get even better? I'm I'm just fully confident that he'll remain a good set jump shooter. I know there were some ebbs and flows to his season there last year. And then Josh Giddy and Shea for OKC. Shea Gilch Alexander is that guy. Looking at his self-creation, uh, he had a down year from an outside shooting perspective. But when you look at the level of difficulty on his shots, his life should get easier even without Chet Holmgren this year. Uh, and I'm kind of hoping that maybe he could so play better. Right. And I'm kind of hoping he can defend at the level he did during his rookie season with the Clippers. We've still been sort of waiting for that since he arrived in OKC. I'm not the biggest believer in Josh Giddy, though. That being said, the idea of Josh Giddy working with Chip Anglin behind the scenes maybe makes me think that I need to reevaluate that. And he didn't look like he, or rather, he looked like someone who didn't belong in summer league this year, which is encouraging. That backcourt has a lot of nice size, um, which will help them for rebounding even if they're not, and then like Giddy's a solid defender. I think Shea's been decidedly below average in OKC. There's a lot of different dimensions though, that I think um, those two could take. I do worry about their shooting overall. Are, is Giddy going to have the ball enough or warrant enough attention when he does from the defense because they know he's not looking to score? Uh, is he going to go to his floater? Is he going to look to attack the rim that Shea gets these higher quality looks as a set jump shooter or is too much of the offensive creation burden going to fall on him and does OKC without Chet Holmgren have enough, you know, orbiting shooters to maximize and optimize those guys. And so I think you could probably futz and fiddle with the order here. If I had to bet which three had the highest upside leading into next season, I actually think it's the Knicks because Jalen Brunson is really good. Uh, but these three for me were absurdly tough. And that's even looking at them now, I didn't actually have them. You had them one right after the other in your rankings. I did not, but I, I had the, the Thunder and the Knicks right together. They're basically inseparable for me. Um, so I'm glad that you unveiled these as a trio because you can shuffle them up in any order and, and you can pretty easily justify it. Um, I think an interesting way of looking at it is just, you know, we have six players here. One to six, best to worst. I, I think it's probably Shea at number one, Lamelo at number two. RJ Barrett and Jalen Brunson to me are pretty even at three and four. And then it's probably Rozier at five and Giddy at six. But I think... Shea has by far the highest, like I can carry a unit ceiling because LaMelo, as good as he is at so many things, he requires other pieces. I'm with you. I did want to ask, who do you think is the best defender of these six? I know a lot of people don't think guard defense matters, but it, it matters at least a little bit. Probably. It, is it already? It's, La, it's LaMelo or Barrett, right? I think it's probably Barrett or LaMelo, but I would go with Barrett. And then T Rozier's probably ahead of Brunson, Shea, and Giddy at this point. But yeah, I just thought that yeah. was that was fascinating. Who do you which backcourt is the highest upside next season to you of these three? To me, it's Lamelo and Rozier actually, because Ooh. I think that Lamelo has scoring upside. He just doesn't play that way. And what if he does? To me, like more than any of these other guys, I think he's the one who can become the all-around superstar. I don't. I don't know that I ever see. SGA becoming an all defensive player while also scoring 25 a game. I can see LaMelo doing that. 
and also, you know, having nine or 10 assists a game. Yeah. He's the better, he's the better passer there that those two are interesting. Like I've never like needed to compare them and I don't know why you would until this discussion. Um, but that's sort of a fascinating debate. So that wraps up tier five for us. And so the members of tier five were, and this is in, you know, ascending order, the Pacers, the jazz, the bucks, the Kings, the Pistons, the Hornets, the Knicks and the thunder uh, that moves us to, tier that was tier four excuse me this moves us to tier that was tier five wow i'm tripling all my words we were in tier four and the first member of tier four checking at number 17 in our backcourt rankings is the miami heat with kyle lowry and victor oladipo my first instinct is this feels too high it does feel too high immediately <laughs> i'm tr like kyle lowry can still be good was banged up last year i don't want to read too much into how he sort of finished the season and some of the playoff moments that he had Victor Oladipo coming back and being healthy and not needing to be even the Heat's like second best or even third best player is interesting to me. I do think this could sneakily be the best defensive backcourt that we've seen to date in these rankings. Uh, and that's including above uh, the, uh, oh my God, I'm stumbling here. The Who's the best defensive backcourt that we, Drew Holiday, Pat Connaughton so far. I could see this, these two getting at least that honor, but they were, I'm wondering if I was, you know, we had them in similar spots. So were we too aggressive with them? Like, I, I kind of feel like we were. Like, I, I, A big part of me wants to drop them into tier five here. My my whole thing is that this is the one of the few backcourts we've seen to date where both of the players can be above average defensively and then also generate their own shot on offense. And that is like a pretty big deal. Imagine how good this lineup would have been in like 2017. <laughs> But like that's the issue, right? Is that how much more are you going to get from these guys? Lowry showed those first age-related cracks last season. Oladipo is a ticking time bomb with the constant injury issues that he's had to deal with. I don't know that I'm ever going to feel comfortable betting on him playing upwards of 70 games. And Lowry's probably not going to either. So as talented as they are, I, I kind of, as we're going through this exercise and talking more about some of these younger players and how they fit together, like I might revamp and have them like below Charlotte. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm thinking we put them too high, but there's also just the level of, like I said, the dynamism that I've said for both ends on them. Uh, and look, I'm just buying into like Kyle Lowry being better and healthier mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. And that prospect is enough for me. And he's also just, he elevates the play of his teammates. When you look at the way he defends, you look at the stuff he does on uh, away from the ball on offense, as we get to number 16 here, and I'm going to give you the talking stick for this one. Uh, we have, <laughs> we have the Brooklyn nets with Kyrie Irving and Seth Curry. The one thing I'll note is because Kyrie's there, and the, you look at the nets wing rotation, Ben Simmons is not a wing, but he, he's not going to be the starting point guard here. I did wonder for a second, there's a lineup they could run out where maybe Kyrie and Ben Simmons are their backcourt. And I think that would change the complexion of these rankings a ton, but the nets are at number 16 that is outside the top 15. And we did share similar sentiments on this. So I want to hand the talking stick to you so you can justify why they're in tier four. Availability is part of it, right? I, we're not going to see the same reasons for Kyrie Irving being kept off the floor that we did this last season. But even beyond that, now, does he want to play 82 games in a season? Is he capable of staying healthy enough to play anything close to 82 games in a season? Even if you move past the availability concerns, which Seth Curry has had some of as well, it's kind of a one-dimensional backcourt. Or I think you can make a case that Seth Curry throughout his career has been a little bit underrated on the defensive end. He has good hands. He has some good instincts on the perimeter, but he can get bullied around. He, he loses track of his man off ball. It's not always pretty. And I don't have anything to say about Kyrie Irving's defense because for me to have something to say about it, it would have to exist. So the offensive a little bit. for a tiny little bit, the offensive ceiling here, obviously through the roof, this, this could look like a top five backcourt on any given night because Kyrie Irving can go for 60 points on any given night. It's what happens when that doesn't happen. That is the issue. So I, I think this is a, a significant step up from Kyle Lowry and Victor Oladipo, which I realize is ironic considering I'm staring at me ranking Kyrie Irving and Seth Curry one spot below them. Um, but 
I don't know how much I believe in this backcourt, despite the obvious name power. And I think even if you included Ben, I don't think that's going to end up being the backcourt. But if you said it was Ben Simmons and Kyrie, there's just so much combustibility here with health. Ben Simmons dealing with the back stuff. Seth Curry just had ankle surgery. Kyrie Irving has always just dealt with something when it comes to injuries. Joe Harris working his way back from ankle surgery as well, if you want to throw him in here. So the ceiling is through the roof, as Michael Jordan would say, or the ceiling is the roof as Michael Jordan would say, but there's just not enough certainty here. And I look, there's defensive concerns for sure. We know M so much of NBA offense now is finding weak points um, on the team's defense and just poking it and prodding it and continuously going after it. I feel like you can do that a lot against Brooklyn's backcourt, right? Then you want to throw Patty Mills in this equation or whatever. And so Ben Simmons will help neuter some of that. But again, are we viewing him as the backcourt? How often is he even going to play if we consider him as that? Uh, so yeah, I didn't know what to do with this team. I feel bad putting them this low. I just, I also don't feel bad at the same time because of how much uncertainty needs to be caked in with just like, is this even, is Kyrie Irving even in Brooklyn to finish the season? I know everything's not hunky dory in Brooklyn, but we just had the Nets wouldn't give him a max contract extension. Um, he was looking actively for another destination and couldn't find one and had to opt in because he wouldn't have gotten max money in free agency. Probably uh, like, and then Kevin Durant requested a trade and then rescinded it. This is just like the Nets are so unbelievably combustible. I don't actually feel bad about putting them here. So you look at the talent and it's like, oh, okay. And you even look at the offensive fit. It should be fine. There's just too many question marks here. Plus, it kind of feels like there's a step up as soon as we get to this next team. And I, well, I was also going to say like, we had these next four teams looped so closely together. So do you want me to unveil them at the same time? Yeah, sure. And this is how we're going to conclude the first part of this. So at number 15, we have the Denver Nuggets with Jamal Murray and Contavious Caldwell-Pope. At number 14, we have the New Orleans Pelicans with C.J. McCollum and Herb Jones. At number 13, we have the Chicago Bulls with Lonzo Ball and Zach Levine. And at number 12, we have the Washington Wizards with Monte Morris and Bradley Beal. We both had these all of these teams ranked between uh, 12 and 16. So this is just very apropos that they, they landed here. For me specifically... Um, I don't the like all of these were tough. Bradley Beal's coming off a down year. I think he's probably the best player of this eight at his peak, though. Jamal Murray's coming back from an ACL injury. Uh, Lonzo Ball isn't even going to be ready to start the season at this point. I think Zach Levine's just so good that you have to bring him up. And so I'll I'm like jumping around here. And so I'll start with the Nuggets. I could envision this being higher because Jamal Murray and KCP work really well together. Uh, KCP is going to give you some point of attack defense in addition to his, his shooting on offense. I think he can move fairly well and transition away from the ball too. And then Jamal Murray, when he got injured, was playing like some really gritty defense himself. And we know about his off the dribble creation. He improved as a passer. The way he works off of Nikola Jokic is just absolutely fantastic. There is a, a much higher ceiling here than number 15. It's just Jamal Murray's coming back from an ACL injury. And so there is sort of that question mark there. And then you're looking at like CJ McCollum in New Orleans being so good and Herb Jones being a dominant defender. I think Zach Levine is just an absolutely fantastic player. And if Lonzo Ball is healthy, he's just sort of the ideal offensive connective tissue as an away from the ball shooter or someone who can keep the ball moving or get you jump started in transition. So um, you're just like, my thoughts are incoherent here because these four were so inextricably really tied tough. together. And I, I think what's, I, what's really funny is that these four, I, I maintain this order, but if you were asking me like ceiling expectations, I might just reverse it because I think that Jamal Murray has that explosive potential has shown that defensive grittiness and is a really strong fit with KCP. If KCP is in full working order as that three and D guy who can take all sorts of pressure off him, Herb Jones, there's he's, he's a defensive menace, a defensive system unto himself already with room to grow his offensive game. CJ McCollum just shot flames as soon as he arrived in new Orleans Lonzo Ball, aside from the injury he's currently dealing with, just a perpetually underrated defensive force who is still a somewhat efficient offensive player. And if his three-point shot is falling, is actually a pretty good player. And then the least exciting of them is probably the Wizards. As much, I mean, you, you know how much I love Monte Morris, but like he is what he is. He's an efficient point guard who doesn't make mistakes, which also limits his ceiling on any given night. And we know what Bradley Beal is. He's not getting any younger. So 
as much as I think that Bradley Beal is the best player of this group of four, that this order that we have makes a lot of sense. If you're asking me like upside rankings, just totally reverse it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I might say the McCollum Herb Jones one might, oh, I guess Herb Jones can improve so much. It's just, there's not going to be a ton of creation there, even with CJ having improved there the past couple of years. I do think the bulls, maybe they need to be lower entering the year, just knowing about Lonzo balls injury. I made my rankings before it. You made it after the news that yep. he was going to not be ready um, with that knee injury. Uh, but Zach Levine is just so good. Like he has to be one of the, if you're asking someone to just create a jump shot, three point shot off the dribble in the NBA, there's like maybe four or five players you'd want instead of him. Honestly, like he's just I become that. that much of, of a force. And so, I, but the Lonzo ball injury, it's like, so Zach Levine is sort of carrying the bulls at this point because of the uncertainty with Lonzo's injury, I could listen to an argument for why they would need to drop. But again, it's like I said, there's questions elsewhere. It's with the Pelicans, I like the idea of them going with this backcourt. You have Ingram and Zion Williamson when he's healthy and you just get your creation from those two in McCollum. But when you look at this backcourt specifically, there's not actually a ton of primary self-creation here. You'd probably rather have Ingram and maybe even Zion run the offense than McCollum just because of the attention Zion draws when he I'm gets also just, I'm also just trusting you with McCollum and Herb Jones because I believe where I was filling out my ballot, it specifically said, just trust me. I talked to Pelicans people. I, I wanted to confirm. And look, they did. They announced it this way too last year, but the Pelicans roster is like kind of wonky, but I love the idea of like going with this and then having Ingram and Zion and then Jonas, Alan Tunis, and that's your starting five. If we're wrong, then I actually think that they can only go down. If it's McCollum and Devontae Graham, unless it's McCollum and Brandon Ingram, you're not gonna right. you're not gonna move up. Would be my argument there. I'm, I'm so, ready for the 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 Brandon Ingram Zion Williamson backcourt. Look, some of those lineups, if they really wanted to, they could just roll with it and try it. Have have Herb Jones, Trey Murphy, and then Larry Nance. Just that's your front line. Let's like do it. they'll defend the front line. Um, that's gonna do it for part one. Hope you enjoyed this. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast on YouTube and Spotify and Apple. Um, that helps us out a ton. Download every episode. That's apparently, I read an article. That's how we actually move up the charts. And Hardwood Knox did for the first time hit the top 90 of basketball podcasts in the U.S. And so I'd really like to break that and improve upon it. Follow Adam. I love him. I miss him, even though we talk all the time because he's one of my best friends. Um, that's also what made this podcast so enjoyable for so many years is it wasn't just a business partnership. Like I legitimately care about Adam, even though he's a dirtbag trader at this point. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Frommel09. Uh, the socials are in the podcast description for NBA math, sports math, all that jazz. Until next time, and like always, I speak for Adam and myself when I say we leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, Frank Nielakina.